Section 10 of the Romance of the Romanovs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin Macabre. Chapter 7 The Great Peter. Conclusion. I have sufficiently introduced the kind of men who were the intimate friends and co-workers of the Tsar in his youth. Lefort and Gordon both died in 1699, and new favourites arose. Some of these were like General Sharmetiev, fine and loyal servants of proved worth. Some were like Romodanovsky, nobles of high birth and ability, who, in spite of their insufferable haughtiness and despotism, served the Tsar and the state well. But a large capacity were mere adventurers with a glib tongue, a large capacity for liquor, or a contemptible obsequiousness commended to the Tsar, and who then plundered the empire with utter unscrupulousness. Of these, Menshikov was the most prominent, most successful, and most famous. Legends grew like mushrooms in the dank soil of Peter's reign, and Menshikov's origin is, like that of many of his colleagues, very obscure. It seems certain that either as a boy or a young man, he sold meat pies on the street of Moscow, and Peter lets us know that he was an illegitimate child. The wit with which he plied his trade attracted Lufo, who made a valet of him, and then attracted Peter, who appropriated him. Peter gave him a license which many historians interpreted in accordance with the morals of the time. He went everywhere with the Tsar and became rich. In 1706, for no public merit, he became a prince. In 1711, he bought the Duchy of Courland. He was the most corrupt and venal of Peter's corrupt ministers and was on various occasions compelled to disgorge a total sum of two and a half million dollars yet remained fabulously rich and as haughty and brutal to his serfs and servants as he was rich. Count Golovin, in later years, found a similar type of man, a boot black, and pushed him at court as a rival of Menshikov. He did become public prosecutor, but he never dislodged Menshikov. After 1700, this man was Peter's chief associate and private minister, the young Tsar as we saw in the last chapter, built a place for him in the foreign quarter and made it the chief scene of his rollicking. Menshikov had two sisters, Marie and Anne, who, with Darya and Barbara Arseniev and Anisia Tolstoy, formed the nucleus of the loose young women of the colony. Peter had, at his mother's instance, married Evdoxia Lapukin, who bore him two children, Alexander, who died young, and Alexis. She was a typical Russian, of a type as different as possible from that of the Menshikovs and Arsenievs. When his mother, Natalia, died, he scattered Evdoxia's relatives and practically deserted her. He is said to have soaked her brother in spirits of wine and set fire to him. Some historians have a light way of making these stories incredible, but very little was incredible in Peter's world. His pious sister-in-law, Praskovia, widow of the Tsar Fyodor, one day 
poured her bottle of brandy over an offending servant, set fire to it, and beat him with her cane on the sore spot. To finish for the moment with Evdoxia, Peter's first and apparently only legitimate wife, in 1698, as we saw, he condemned her to enter a convent, though there was not the least evidence that she was involved in the conspiracy. She struggled hard, but a coach bore her away to Susdell, where we will resume her strange adventures later. Lefort had been intimate with a young woman named Anna Mons, the daughter of a German wine seller, or according to others, jeweller of the colony. Peter, as in the other cases, took over his friend's relict and set her up as chief favourite in a handsome house. In 1703, however, the Saxon envoy was drowned near Moscow and tender letters from Anna were found in his pocket. It is said, at all events, Anna went to prison for ingratitude, but she found the way out and joined the establishment of the Prussian envoy who, when he presumed to ask of Peter some favour on the ground of his new position, heard her described in terms which may not be translated. But the list of Peter's amours, curious and interesting as it is, would unduly swell the dimensions of this volume. It is enough to note here that his mistresses, of an hour or a year, were almost all of the most common fleshy type, bugsome, sensual, and coarse. One must say seriously in connection with Peter's character that it was as much a matter of economy as of taste. And this is the simple key to his association with the woman whom he eventually, legally or illegally, married and made his Tsarina. The Empress Catherine shall have a chapter to herself in which we will tell her early story. From orphan maid in a Lutheran pastor's house at Marienburg, she had in 1702, passed to the Russian camp and been successively promoted until she shed the tent of the general and then entered the harem of Menshikov. There Peter had discovered her and annexed her. She was then 18 and by all accounts not a beauty, but she had the large hips and full bosom, the round red lips and cheeks, the rolling sensual eyes which Peter loved. Candid observers speak of the eyes as insipid and staring, and describe the nose as turned up, but she must have had qualities. Probably she was shrewd, pliant, simple-minded, and rather motherly in his hours of rage and illness. She settled with him in his humble cottage at St. Petersburg, and washed his shirts. She bore him two sons, and went with him on his campaigns, and in 1712, he went through the form of marriage with her. Catherine bore Peter in all eleven children, but the heir to the throne was Prince Alexis, son of his first wife. Evdoxia had had two sons. Alexander had died, and Alexis was, when his mother was enclosed in a convent in 1699, entrusted to the egregious care of Menshikov for education. One of Menshikov's first tasks was to teach him to drink brandy, and he acquired a truly Russian capacity for drink. As he matured, he was similarly educated in the license of conduct. He was, like his father, nervous and unstable, and he became irritable, moody and coarse. But there was a singular difference between father and son. Alexis was very pious. Piety in Russia was apt to lodge in a special part of the brain and did not exclude drunken and dissolute habits. 
Alexis loved Moscow and its churches, and rich ritual and legends of the saints, and naturally the spreading discontent at Peter's reforms and blasphemies found something in the nature of a focus in the court of Alexis. As he grew up, he intensely disliked his father's policy. Peter roughly summoned him to quit Moscow and prepare by a military education for the throne. He quailed and protested that he did not want to be a soldier. Peter sent him to Dresden, and hearing that his lady friends were too numerous and notorious, married him to Princess Charlotte of Wolfenbüttel, a gentle, religious, pockmarked young lady who could not compete with the livelier dames. She died in childbirth, and Alexis continued to drink and riot and admire the religious art of Dresden. Peter again sharply scolded him, and gave him the alternative of becoming either a soldier and czar or a monk. Alexis whined that he thought rather to be a monk than a rough and bloody soldier, though he shuddered at the ascetic prospect, and apparently intended to escape at his father's death on the ground that he had taken the vows under compulsion. He still dallied. In 1716, Alexis now being 26 years old, the Tsar peremptorily bade him enter the monastery at Tver or join the army. He replied that he was coming to Russia, and he begged to be allowed to bring his latest passion. A young lady named Euphrosin. After a short delay, Peter heard that Alexis and Euphrosin had fled, and in a terrible rage, he sent his agents over Europe in search of his son. They traced him and his lady to an ancient castle in Austria. Alexis had fled to Vienna and hysterically begged the emperor's protection, and the emperor had sent him to the obscure castle until he could bring about a reconciliation. When it was known that Russian spies watched the castle, the emperor ordered the prince to leave behind all his Russian comrades, who encouraged him in deep drinking, and fly to Naples. And Alexis, taking only one page, for whom he passionately pleaded, it was Euphrosin, in male dress, fled to the south. Naples was then under the empire. The Russian agents at the court of Vienna demanded the surrender of Alexis. Dreading the anger of the Tsar, the emperor sent them on to Naples and directed his viceroy that they must have an interview with the prince. The doors were thrown open, and the agents persuaded Alexis, by lying representations, that Peter would forgive him. Their last argument was that Euphrosin would be taken away from him unless he complied, and the girl, a lusty, thick-lipped peasant girl, like Catherine, it seems tearfully begged her royal lover to go. The jade had been bribed by Peter's agents. She was pregnant and was left in Italy, where the price of her treason was quickly spent. Alexis, full of the promise that he had only to ask forgiveness and he could retire to his country seat and wed his dear Euphrosin, hurried joyfully to Moscow. He arrived on the last day of January, 1718, and Moscow, ignorant of the arts by which he had been entrapped, beheld him with tragic astonishment. The Tsar was in one of his worst moods. Three days later, a court of clerical and lay dignitaries was formed and father and son met before them. Peter showered incentives on his miserable son, and then, as Alexis flung himself to the ground and asked pardon, promised to forgive him if he would renounce his right to the throne and betray the accomplices of his supposed plot. 
every man or woman to whom alexis had disparaged his father was named and peter shuddered with rage there had been no conspiracy alexis said nothing but vague rumours but the torture chambers soon rang with shrieks and russian blood streamed against upon the stones of moscow in his bloodshot fury peter conceived or affected a suspicion that his first wife evdoxia had been in the plot and a gang of questioners went to the convent at suzdal fifty nuns were flogged and questioned but the innocence of evdoxia could not be brought under suspicion unhappily a curious page of evdoxia's conventual life which had ended years before was brought to light she had had a lover in the convent a noble named glebov had befriended her and from friendship they had passed to intimacy her impassioned love letters of eight years before were put before the czar and he saw red glebov was horribly tortured and wrapped in furs as it was called to preserve his vitality and torture a little longer impaled it is said but of this we cannot be sure that evdoxia was scourged naked by two monks she was at all events confined more strictly from that time alexis had complied with the conditions but peter the great had not done with his son the vile euphrosine was brought to moscow and she supplied fresh evidence a new court was invoked and it shrank from the murder that the czar plainly contemplated alexis was confronted with his faithless lover he was knouted and he held to his simple story that he could not be a soldier and had done no more than criticize a third court was set up and it issued sentence of death and a few days later the prince's body was exposed to the public gaze with the story that god had spared the father the blood of his son by visiting alexis with apoplexy how the prince really died no man knows but few now or then would believe the story of natural death it was june 26th and on june 29th we read a new ship was launched and peter joined with his usual robustness in the merry making in 1719 catherine's son peter died and on the hereditary principle the crown should pass to little peter son of the dead alexis and charlotte of wolfenbuttel the czar was worried but took no effective steps to settle the very grave matter of the succession catherine too was worried for peter had a new mistress a woman of far greater charm than she and it was well within the sphere of his ingenuity to secure a divorce and wed again but the romance of peter mikhailov had already in spite of condensation run to such length and the new romance so largely concerns catherine that we may open a new chapter and present that lady properly to the reader before describing the last phase end of section 10 recording by shreya sethi